Hey everyone, welcome back to the Leadership Podcast, where we talk about the social responsibility of business leaders and try to figure out who is getting it right and who is stepping in it this week through the lens of the week's news. I'm Caleb Gardner. And I'm Adrielle Parker. This week, we are going to do our usual roundup of the last two weeks of news since we were off last week, including the state of the EV market, some legal troubles for Meta over child safety, updates on our story about retailers closing because of quote unquote crime. Hmm. And there's been a lot of AI news this week that we've got to cover. We'll also do our deep dives into the state of media and content creators, as well as talk about inclusive sourcing and hiring today. And then, of course, we will end with some good things to send us off on a positive note. Speaking of that, how was Usher, Adriel? Tell us all about Las Vegas. So much fun. Usher is an incredible performer, super high energy. It was nice because I honestly didn't know what to expect or didn't know much about the venue. He performed at Dolby Live on the Vegas Strip. And it's not a massive concert space, but it still has some intimacy, which was nice. So it was a good time. My mom and I lived our best lives. We made friends with the folks <laughs> sitting next to us that had just like our own little party. So That's it was a so good time. Um, I saw the pics. It looked really fun. Yeah, it was a good time. I'm actually going back to Vegas in a few days for a client. <laughs> and I was like, why couldn't this have been two weeks before? Oh, my God. So you just went there and then came back and then went back. Yeah, that's not a short trip either. No, it's seven hours going and six coming back. So, yeah, wow. it'll be worth it, though. I'm that's excited like flying about this to Europe. Client, it's probably so. more than flying to Europe for you. Yeah, uh, London is about six-ish hours. I wish yeah. I were going to Europe, though. That would be nice. Hopefully so. Yeah. How have you been? I've been good. I was also off last week. I did some client work in DC and then did some backpacking actually. So I was out in the woods completely off grid, which was very nice. It was beautiful fall weather. It was like 70 degrees the entire time. And of course, now I'm back in Chicago and it snowed on Halloween. So good times. (laughs) It it was actually wild, like how few kids we saw out. I was like, it's cold, but y'all want candy, right? Like, where is everybody? I don't know. It was a weird Halloween season, at least for me. And a a lot of my friends also did not celebrate this year. It was was strange. I didn't even consider a costume. And I love Halloween. But I was like, I just don't have the capacity. So next year. You usually do like parties and stuff? Oh, my goodness. I've done a variety of things. I've gone to things. I've had like a Halloween house party before with friends. where We did like tapas and wine. Um, But most importantly, I just like to dress up and create ridiculous costumes. <laughs> into <laughs> the imagination part. I think Halloween's really fun for that reason. It is. I want to give a shout out to my middle kid went as Taco Tuesday this year, Ooh, which okay. meant that they were dressed up as a taco. Okay. And then just had a hat that said Tuesday. So you knew, I guess, what day it was. I don't know. Love it. Anyway, I it love was it. fun. Super creative. People That's loved great. it. They went door to door saying trick or taco which I really appreciated. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm, I'm a fan. Huge fan. Oh, anyway, good times. Good times. And now we are going to be in a sugar rush for the next, what, three or four weeks until it all <laughs> runs out. Yeah. We're going to help. We're going to have to help of with course. that. Oh, those were the days <laughs> being a kid and like waking up and being like, where's my Twix? And my mom's like, I don't know. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it looks a little suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a that's a, just a service that, that we parents provide. Really, mm-hmm. we're taking the hit so our kids don't have to. Yeah, sparing us the cavities, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
there was so much that happened while we were out. Too much. I mean, yeah, it's always too much. But obviously, we're still the the events in the Middle East are still unfolding every day, and we are having ugh, just some tragic humanitarian news out of that. There was some good news today that there was a new humanitarian corridor opened. I believe the first people finally got to leave Gaza completely, yeah. which that- is great. So a lot of the efforts of the Biden administration advocating for that paying off, including opening up a pathway through Egypt. So we'll wait and see for that, but definitely keep my ear to the ground. It is related to something I want to talk about, which is the state of legacy media Mm. right now. But we'll get to that in a second. What else happened? 41 states and the District of Columbia sued Meta last week, alleging that the company hurts children by violating their privacy and misleading them about the potential harms they may experience from using its products. Were you following this story at all or oh. were you unplugged like me and you just was, saw it in passing and was like, oh, shit, I want to want to read about that. I was fully unplugged. And in true social media fashion, that was pretty much buried on my timeline. I did not hear about this. 41 states and D.C. Yep. Wow. It was a little buried, right? In the news of the Israel war and the presidential campaign. And it's crazy that 41 states can sue one of the most powerful companies in the United States and it barely scratches the surface of the news. It just makes me think about also the power that social media has and these companies like Meta that are running our social media platforms. I wonder how much of it they were like, we're going to just scrape this away and pretend like it's not going on so you don't see it. So you're saying maybe there were some there was some <laughs> shadow banning of this story. That's what you're alleging. <laughs> maybe. I mean, the allegation is that the company engaged in a, quote, scheme to exploit young users for profit. That is outrageous. And so are they also providing like receipts? Like, are they coming with examples of this or are they just sort of very broadly saying this? I mean, you know how it is. Like, they don't really bring this kind of thing if they don't have examples. Mm -hmm. But obviously, Meta is going to argue that they're out of context or that there wasn't any kind of knowing. The the problem with a lot of this is it's hard to prove intent. Like, we know what the outcomes are. We've had data on the effects of especially Instagram, but really a lot of Meta's products on Mm -hmm. the mental well-being of teenagers especially but really um, kids of all ages and young adults and old adults we've had data on how terrible this has been for a really long time Mm -hmm. i think what's going to be hard to argue for these states is did meta knowingly do this or was it a unknowing byproduct of how they had set the system up they are claiming that the company knowingly deployed changes to keep the children on site to the detriment of their well-being So we'll see how well the states can prove that. But it's not a good look for Meta. This just made me think about, uh, this was, gosh, was this two years? Two years ago when Facebook came under fire after there was a document leaked about the negative impact of social media on girls. Do you remember this? Yes. Um, Former employee testified in front of the U.S. Senate. And I feel like I heard about it for two months straight and then heard nothing else about it. So no clue what happened. But there was an internal document leaked that talked about the use of Facebook and how it's leading young women, young girls more specifically, to eating disorders like anorexia, um, increased rates of suicide and depression amongst teenagers and things like that. Um, yes. And really calling out that leadership at Facebook and Instagram are aware of these things because they absolutely have people researching. I mean, come on. It's like, they're, they're huge exactly. companies. Exactly. 
right? I mean, so, my sense is that these things are connected. Yeah. That was part of a larger kind of building a case. It's just it moves so slowly, but <sighs> it does feel like the chickens are coming home to roost for all that data that's been gathered for a while. Yeah. We'll see what the outcome of this ends up being. For sure. What else? I know we have tons of things. On Do our you radar. remember from a few weeks ago when we talked about Target closing a few stores? I do. And they claimed that the reason they were doing it was because the crime in the areas was too high. We had a couple, I think two of our Target locations here in New York close for that reason. So they claimed <laughs> in the news, at least. Yep. So a new report has called bullshit on that claim. It says that retailers are overstating the extent and impact of theft as a deflection to camouflage weak demand and mismanagement. Basically saying they are using this excuse of crime in the area as a way to downsize and not have it be a red flag on earnings calls. Hmm. So that's bullshit. That's so interesting. I'm just thinking about the one location that I know for sure closed here in East Harlem in Upper Manhattan. And there's not a lot up there still in terms of like big box stores. I think that Target sits or did sit in a a building with a Costco and there's never any shortage of traffic going on there. So I'm I'm really curious to, to see what the real issue is. Also, Nearly all of our targets have locks on just about everything. I'm talking soap, Ugh, lotion. Yes. Anything you need, you are going to have to stand there and wait for someone to come open the cabinet and unlock it and hand you the item. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. It's, I mean, obviously, they're going to stick to this story and and blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I, I remember it being a little bit of a red flag at the time when they were closing nine, nine stores. Mm-hmm. Um. And we were like, what is really behind this? And this analysis is basically saying this may be due more. This may be more due to the underperformance of these stores than it is actually the crime. And I think that if that is true, let's just stipulate if that is true. And if business leaders are crafting a public narrative about crime when they know that the real reason they want to close these doors Mm-hmm. is just because they were mismanaged. That is extremely unethical and contributes to a larger narrative about being afraid of crime that creates public policy disasters. So don't do it, is what I'm saying. <laughs> if you're a retailer, <laughs> don't be tempted to do some shit like this. This is not great. I'm going to have to go down a rabbit hole in that because now my brain, my the wheels are turning for me and I'm wondering, did they strategically close stores in specific neighborhoods and areas? And I wonder if that was part or of Or were there making. was there opening those doors in those neighborhoods just not as successful as they thought. Right. And now they're blaming the neighborhood. Right. You know what I mean? Some of the stores that try to open in quote unquote deserts, you know, like areas that haven't had the kind of retail presence that they're trying to provide, mm-hmm. sometimes it is hard to change the buying behaviors of those communities. Sure. Yeah. But what you don't do is then turn around and blame the communities and say you're just rife with crime and we're going away. Uh, target target i tell you you've been real busy this year <laughs> they made some iffy decisions this year i would love yeah. to like get like a target i mean they would never do this but get like a evp from target and give us some behind the scenes on this yeah. shit and the like pulling the lgbtq stuff off the shelves and like what what is going on there's some fear-driven decisions happening there i think so i 
think so. Anyway, we can only stipulate, like I said. Mm. Speaking of stipulation, another story that has been bubbling up in the last couple of weeks is the state of the EV market. So basically what is happening is that Ford, GM, Tesla, and even Tesla and some other retailers are basically saying, hey, the EV market is hitting a little bit of a turning point where we have more stock and we are producing more inventory than people are actually willing to buy. And there's a lot of speculation about why this is actually the case. To me, this is both an infrastructure problem in that like we don't, if you have an EV, you are still not confident that you can use that EV for every use case you have, including Mm -hmm. long road trips, which Americans are very fond of. There's a lot of range anxiety about where are we going to be able to charge. There's a lot of just time that you kill when you have to sit and charge your EV for an hour instead of spending that 10 minutes at the gas station. So there's some infrastructure problems that are really still not quite meeting, Mm -hmm. I think, the practical reality of how people like to use their cars. And then I think there's the price problem, like the average cost, I believe. I don't remember the exact number as I heard this on podcast recently. I think the average is still ten, twenty thousand dollars more than a normal combustion engine car. I think the average cost of an EV right now is somewhere around fifty-eight thousand. Mm. It's still pretty high. Yeah, yeah. So it's still cost prohibitive for a lot of people. I think that it's been seeing some interesting data around hybrids, like Ford's. I think doubling down on hybrids right now, basically saying people want to be more environmentally friendly and importantly want to be seen mm-hmm. as being more environmentally friendly, and a hybrid might be a good hybrid solution (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) which has been true i think for a while but basically the read of this is that maybe the big especially the big three got so afraid of tesla's valuation that they really went hard at the ev market and Mm -hmm. it may have been slightly too soon yeah yeah that's a fair assessment i see there was a survey amongst U.S. adults, and they found that the concern around the charging stations or home charging is the largest concern. So that tracks. That definitely tracks. Yeah. I mean, that would stop me. <laughs> Not everybody can home charge. If you're in a big apartment complex, if you don't have a garage, if you park on the street, like there's some, again, real infrastructure things around even being able to home charge, which means you have to depend on often unreliable or unfindable charging stations. Absolutely. Huh. Interesting stuff. We should stipulate, and I think we've talked about this in previous episodes, that EVs are great, but they also have lots of trade-offs in terms of their own environmental impact, including mm-hmm. like where their materials are sourced from. So they're not a perfect solution to removing carbon from the atmosphere anyway. Sure. And that there's a lot of industry changes, including with some of the biggest polluters, that would make a better environmental impact. Mm-hmm. But we like to think we are making ethical and sustainable personal choices. And what kind of car you buy is one of the biggest investments that you make. And so we want to feel like we're doing good, right? Yeah. Yep. Got to pat yourself on the back. <laughs> yeah. I will say I, we've been wanting an EV for a while. We, we don't have one yet, mm-hmm. partly for the reasons we're talking about in this article in terms of being cost prohibitive and infra- Structure prohibitive, but yeah. I think we would go that direction. We're like one of those consumers that wants to go in that direction and doesn't feel like we can yet. Right. Hopefully, it'll make sense to you at some point. Yeah. Meanwhile, you are over in New York and you probably don't drive anyway. 
<laughs> I, well, <laughs> I do actually drive as a result of the pandemic, but parking is it's starting. Well, it's not starting. It has returned and become difficult again. So I'm on the fence of if I'm actually going to keep my car moving into the new year. But I do use yeah. it a good amount because I live in Brooklyn. So it's not like I'm always in Manhattan in the city. Ah, uh, But you drive, in, you don't take the train or get into Manhattan another way? If I go to Manhattan, I def I almost always take the train. But if I'm just like moving around Brooklyn or going to Queens, visiting friends, going to the beach when it's actually warm or our oversized sandboxes, as I like to call them, I prefer to drive. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, have you tried one of those electric bikes? Those things are pretty cool. Like a good hybrid option between a normal bike and I don't know, I guess an electric motorcycle. Yeah, I haven't. Biking in the city terrifies me. I've seen one too many accidents. I know one too many folks that have gotten into accidents on their bikes, but also our city bikes are extremely heavy and they're even heavier. The electric ones are even heavier. So haven't tested it out, but maybe next, maybe in the spring, I'll explore some options, some commuter options. We'll see. Yeah, you have to report back on that. Yeah. But yeah, definitely stay safe. Doing anything in Manhattan frightens me, but I yes. think that's how the rest of us feel. And I mean, <laughs> every literally every other person that lives in the U.S. <laughs> yes, definitely. So a couple more things we got to cover off on just because they're a pretty big story. So uh, I have bad news for all my ESG friends out there. New Uh-oh. data from Diligent shows how thoroughly the it, that investors are turning away from environmental and social shareholder proposals, ESG proposals, especially the big three investors, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. BlackRock's support for E and S, not the G, that's interesting that they actually hmm. separated out the G as maintaining in terms of where they are putting some energy, which is a whole separate story. But BlackRock's support for E and S proposals dropped from 41.3% in the 2020-2021 season to a mere 8.7% in 2022-2023. That's a pretty big shift. Yeah. And it is congruent with what we've been reporting on, which is their public statements basically backing away from it. Yep. I'm not surprised. It's been a bit of a roller coaster for ESG as well as DEI this year, which... Seemingly, a lot of people are starting to lump together, even though they should not be. So I was like, listen to episode, which episode? <laughs> I know. <laughs> right, we'll have to flip back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this doesn't surprise me at all. I think we've gone through a pandemic. We have all of these political conflicts that are arising now. I think we've always had political conflicts, but I think the visibility of it all is just causing a significant shift in terms of society and the way that people are interacting and we're yeah, seeing the impact on the workplace as well. Yeah. It's of course they're not saying that's the reason. Of course that's not. the thing. It's, it's not they they don't want to be seen being able to be pushed around by conservative mm-hmm. politicians and conservative investors, but fuck, you know that's why. Yeah. It is. I love how the quote from uh, Diligence, Josh Black is the relationship between companies and their stakeholders has returned to normal. What the hell is normal? (laughs) Not giving a shit about ESG and DEI? My goodness. Return to normal being (sighs) we don't care about the social responsibility of our investments. Yeah, we didn't care before. We pretended to a little bit because we wanted to make sure y'all were okay and didn't lose your entire freaking minds during the lockdown. Now that we're back in the office, we're just going to let the facade fall apart. And here we are, still the same. You're welcome. 
I looked back. It was our March 1st, our second episode. Oh, my goodness. Where we talked about DEI versus ESG. Isn't okay. that fascinating? That was a long time ago. <laughs> so go back and listen to like that. If you really, <laughs> I know if you really want to hear more about Adriel's thoughts about where, how those two things relate. It's probably strongly but, opinionated in that one. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like you're not strongly opinionated normally. <laughs> what What's the downstream effects of this? We talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago, but I still, I, I struggle to get a clear line of sight on how much is this going to matter for how companies invest in these kinds of things because if there isn't the incentive of people pushing for these kind of ESG specific index funds do the yeah. do, does the corporate kind of carrot for that go away and on the other side the reason why I don't have clear line of sight is because the regulatory environment is still moving in that direction especially in Europe so if you are a global company and you do business in Europe they're still going to be asking for these kinds of responsible reporting so this is where it's weird to me, where it's like we're getting a little bit of a opposite like backlash on, on one end of the financial spectrum, but not on the other. So it leaves corporate decision makers in a little bit of a weird spot. Yeah. And I'm hoping where they end up landing is just doing the right thing, but I don't know. One can hope. In terms of getting a push internally from organizations, and if we're thinking about employees, I think when it comes to ESG, that's... As it stands now, that would be pretty difficult, considering most people don't really have a full grasp of what ESG even is or what it entails or what it looks yeah. like. So I'm not hopeful that push would come from you know I mean, individual contributors or folks that are keeping your business going. It, it really has to be up to leaders. And it's pretty clear based off of this, what their current stance is. So it's not great. It's not. I don't know. I could definitely see it evolving like I just mm -hmm. I both because of the regulation and because I think that employees care about things like sustainability and social responsibility and that's not going to go away right it just might be de-emphasized or re-emphasized in a different way I think what's true about corporate America in my experience and I'm sure you've seen this too is we are really great at repackaging the exact same shit and calling it something else love it all the time. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I could see ESG going through this life cycle where we just back away from the term because the term is mm -hmm. become this dumb political football. And we end up just repackaging it as something else. And yep. we just go back through the whole it's like rinse and repeat, we go back through the whole cycle because that's it. I don't it's not going to stop that we have to think about sustainability, we have to think about climate impact, we have to think there's still going to be government relations. So if we call it something else, cool, but we're not gonna mm -hmm. have, we're not gonna be able to stop doing it. Right. We're just going to create all this like organizational nonsense around the terms. Exactly. It, it happens all the time. I mean, I think back to one of my previous DEI roles where I think the first two months, two and a half months, we're spent just figuring out what to call our actual team because no one liked DEI, someone didn't like D and I, someone wanted it to be I and D, IDEA, DEIB, alphabet soup, as we always refer to it. Um, <laughs> and it right. just felt like we were just like shuffling papers. And I'm like, but it's the same thing. We're just repackaging it by name and still, what is the strategy? What is the roadmap? What are our goals? I'm at a point now where I'm like, I don't give a crap what you call it. Just let's do the work. Or what are we trying to solve for? What do we want to achieve? So I really hope that at least is something that stays or that people consider moving forward, despite right. what these people are doing, these leaders, yeah. air quotes leaders. We'll see. We'll see. 
We will. Yeah, definitely something I'm keeping my eye on. I mean, because if anything, just because I have friends that work in, in ESG, and I'm like a little bit like, oh, God, I hope you're okay. Yeah. It's, I mean, you've seen it happen in the DEI space where we've seen lots Still of DEI happening. jobs cut. Like, this could definitely happen in the ESG space very easily. So, yeah. Friends, update your resumes. It's time. Oh, that's depressing. Huh. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> last, last big story yes. before we get into our deep dives. We need to cover off on AI news because there's been a lot of movement in this space in the last week, including a new executive order by the Biden administration that is meant to give even more guidance on the development of AI, including guardrails and basically direction for any global agreements or legislation, Mm -hmm. i.e. asking Congress to get off its ass because Congress has not done anything. This was ahead of a summit that happened just, I believe, today. Was that today? A summit hosted in the UK of 28 governments, including China and the US, basically getting them together to sign a a declaration agreeing to cooperate on evaluating the risks of artificial intelligence. I think the idea of getting the US and China in the same room on this is a get. Even Elon Musk was there. So like, it was a pretty big event. Yeah. So this executive order is basically the basically trying to show the Biden administration's point of view on this ahead Mm -hmm. of this global summit. So a lot of movement. I don't know how much of it has teeth, but Mm. I'm excited to see at least some of our leaders being responsible, trying to get out ahead of this and think it through. Yeah. One of the things I found interesting, and I think we touched on this maybe two or three episodes ago, was the option to have some sort of like watermark on AI-generated content. Yeah. So that people can differentiate between what's real, what's authentic versus what's been generated by software. And that, of course, is as this article outlined, which we'll link in the show notes, just touches on matters of privacy, civil rights, consumer protections and scientific research and worker rights, which I think is really interesting. Shocked that they also include artists in here because we've talked a lot about that as well. So curious to see if they actually issue guidance on how to label and watermark these things. But I do think there would be a lot of benefit to having something like that. I mean, someone showed me something a few days ago, an image, and they were like, look how cool this is. And I was like, that is definitely an AI image. And they're like, what? I'm like, yes. You (laughs) can eyeball it, right? Like. It was, it was pretty good, but if you're, I, I think also if you're not familiar, like I play around with a lot of AI tools. I play around with MidJourney. Recently, I've been like down a rabbit hole using Dolly on ChatGPT. So I know what it looks like, but if you haven't, I think, and if your critical reasoning isn't fully there. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, like, <laughs> the good news is that globally and especially in the US, we have excellent critical reasoning and media literacy so not worried at all yeah so i'm like there are context clues there's a caption it could probably tell you there are hashtags but you know anyhow it just was a reminder that not everyone is able to differentiate what is ai generated versus what is real yeah and that's going to continue to be the case Mm -hmm. the commerce department is said to issue guidance to label and watermark ai generated content uh, according to this new executive order. So, okay. We'll see. Again, we'll see. not a lot of specific policy has come out of this UK summit, but the guidance from the executive order is at least something. Mm-hmm. Biden has a lot of power, obviously, over the direction of the federal government specifically and how it uses AI. It has a lot of power to set guardrails that companies have signed on to follow. 
Yeah. But man, we need Congress to do something for real and put mm-hmm. some actual teeth behind this. And I am very worried about how slow they are moving. Yeah. Chop, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, new research from the Pew Research Center basically says that Americans don't understand what companies are doing with their data and have little and believe they have little to no control over what companies or governments do with their data. I saw that. Really interesting. Yep. (laughs) I mean, it's just it feels like a black box, right? Yeah, there's so much fine print to read through. And most of us are not doing that. You you go, you download an app, for example. It's very unlikely that you read through the privacy and data policy, whatever they have on there. You know, Absolutely not. You, you do the quick scroll through that they force you to do and then you check the box and then you go use it. So I get it. I mean, I feel very confused in a lot of ways about how a lot of my data is being collected, stored, used. I was actually looking at LifeLock recently, so I'm like, maybe Were I you? need to actually, oh, yeah, man. I was like, maybe I need to pay for this. I know a couple of people that have, and I've also just been seeing, I, and you never know what's real or what's not, but almost weekly now on Twitter, someone's, oh my gosh, my card was stolen, or someone used it to buy this, and I'm like, oh, I don't need those problems, so who knows? <sighs> who knows? Well, there's actually data in here. Nearly six in 10 Americans frequently skip reading privacy policies and the that other four right. are lying yeah <laughs> i was gonna say I guess, <laughs> I was like, that sounds right actually, if the data's come on skewed. no who actually reads that yeah. give me a break i'd be yeah. surprised if one out of 10 people actually stopped to read that all right what are you deep diving on for us today yeah so i have been seeing a lot of friends and colleagues you speak touched on this earlier when you said polish your resumes, but I've seen a lot of folks <laughs> looking for for new Yikes. roles. And at the same time, I've also seen an influx of people hiring, at least with my clients and folks on my LinkedIn timeline. And as I've been looking at some of these job descriptions, but also hiring processes, I'm a little disappointed because I feel like mm. a, a number of us in the DEI space have been talking for years, some that have been in the space much longer than me for decades about inclusive sourcing, recruiting, and hiring processes. And so I just wanted to touch on that and just draw some attention to it for our leaders who are perhaps involved in the hiring process, who may be hiring managers, or even those that are listening that are sourcers or recruiters full-time or or TA, talent acquisition folks. So that's what I want to touch on and, yeah, just highlight some, some best practices that don't require a lot, but can be pretty transformative in terms of you building a nice candidate pipeline and ultimately, hopefully, hiring people that will diversify your workplace. Yeah, super important. Yeah. And love to talk about the like differences in how you do that as a big kind of enterprise level Mm -hmm. company and how you do that as a small company too. Definitely. That is something that we have thought a lot about as our company and, and don't always get right. Like it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. What are you deep diving on today? I want to talk about this super interesting article in the Washington Post that came out, including some research that said content creators surge past legacy media as news hits a tipping point. Hmm. So basically talking about, and I think this is not just in the wake of the Israel Hamas war, but definitely a great, great case study of it that like following individual content creators for your relevant news is actually starting to feel more 
important for a lot of online users than following the Washington Post or the New York Times or like an outlet that has gained credibility. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know that this is definitely a good thing. <laughs> so we can talk a little bit about that. I think it's good and bad as, as a lot of these trends tend to be. But I do think in the light of the last few weeks, we need to talk about what does this mean when you're trying to report on something like an on the ground war, right? It becomes a lot harder as an individual content creator to have mm. the journalistic credibility of a New York Times who also doesn't necessarily get it right. Right. And so I want to, you know, unpack that and talk about like how we should think about that as, you know, news consumers and individual users as well. Really interesting. Maybe we start with that. I'm excited about this one. Famous last words. A new digital news report by the Reuters Institute basically said one in five adults under 24 use TikTok as a source for news, up five percentage points from last year. According to Britain's Office of Communications, young adults in the UK now spend more time watching TikTok than broadcast. I think that mimics trends that we've seen here in the U.S., this started this shift to individual content creators as a source for news and information really hit a critical point during the pandemic where people would turn to TikTok, YouTube, Instagram instead of traditional news outlets. Mm -hmm. And I want to unpack that a little bit and talk about if you remember the early days of the pandemic, how fast news was moving. Yes. It felt really hard to verify how scared we should be <laughs> do you remember this <laughs> feeling where it was oh, yeah. like okay they stopped south by southwest oh basketball season was close. oh it, it felt like very minute to minute yes and th what happens if you think about the process of being in one of these like newsrooms is that you verify information <laughs> there's a whole in, in integrity of information process that happens where it's like you can't 100 percent verify something through multiple sources you don't publish it. You don't go forward with it. That has shifted a little bit in a digital news era where like being first to a story and like breaking it, even if you're not sure, mm -hmm. actually has become an incentive. But that doesn't always end up being a good thing. And I want to highlight this editor's note from the New York Times about a story that we talked about during not last week's Q&A, but the week before about the mm -hmm. Gaza hospital bombing. The editor's note on October 23rd had to acknowledge that the story that they led with about the hospital bombing in Gaza that led with claims by Hamas government officials and, and included a large headline that basically blamed Israel mm -hmm. ended up being really misleading. And enough that they had to issue one of these editor's notes, which you know that they don't a lot. Very rarely for New York Times. Yeah. And so I want to say this like rush to be first about a story is not always the most responsible. It's very hard to do ethically. And what happens is when the New York Times publishes something like this, we fucking run with it. We reshare it on our Instagram stories. We post TikTok reaction videos about it. It becomes the editor's note isn't what becomes gospel. The original story and the headline is what becomes yeah. gospel. So that that's the context with which we have this rise of content creators that focus usually on a specific niche, right? I would call you one of these people, like in DEI, right? You have your own YouTube, you've got your own online presence, you've got your own newsletter. 
basically we look to individual people as subject matter experts now. And what these folks do, and I want to be very clear about this, is not many of them. There are some who have their own kind of journalistic vertical that I think are very thorough and apply some of the same journalistic standards, but most of them are just fucking repackaging the news from other sources. Yeah. News aggregation. Yeah. They're repackaging that original story from the New York Times that wasn't quite right. Or they're repackaging from other social media sources that are unverified. And so the reason this scares me isn't so much that I don't think we should be listening to individual people or like people should have a platform or we should be, you know, like I do think people have influence they deserve to be listened to. What scares to me about the shift from listening to individual people and not the actual original news sources with the mm-hmm. same journalistic standards is that environment that we've created right now that is rife with disinformation. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that's a lot to digest. I have so many thoughts. I have questions. Yeah. If you could um, solve that for me right now, I feel much, <laughs> much better. It's so interesting that you brought this up as your deep dive because I was just recently thinking about how I used to dedicate time every morning to going through those legacy media sources. Like I used to go do my rundown of checking the New York Times, CNN. Back in the day when I was younger, I would sit in my grandparents' kitchen and read their local newspaper (laughs) and drink their coffee, right? I was a little nerd. I mean, these young kids don't know. They They don't know. know. They'll never know. Running to the front door (laughs) or to the driveway to get that newspaper that is slung halfway across the yard. Just good times. But I don't do that anymore. And that's because I, at this point, feel like I've curated my timeline, especially on Twitter, And I follow people who are my news sources. And most of them, I will say, are either journalists or subject matter experts. But I prefer reading the content from them versus going to the legacy media sources that they actually work for, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, And, you know, of course, they link to articles and things like that. But I've noticed so many people are now just to the point of this article now following influencers. And I think there is a benefit in following reputable sources but how do you weed out and just discern who is a valid news source who's actually fact checking versus who's not and then also the other thought that came to mind is just even with new york times for example if you're presenting this information and you have to come in and and add a, a quick little note or edit things it's making me it's forming some distrust where i'm like can i actually trust the new york times to deliver this information Mm. or are you just trying to deliver it as quickly as possible and as you were saying be number one we are the go-to we've got the story first yeah well there's an incentive from the times to promote the most important news as Mm -hmm. it understands it from a global perspective obviously if you're washington post you're a smaller kind of market sure you're going to cover your community news and that is going to sometimes override the kind of national or global news right but you're never going to be able to cover as the times in a depth that is going to make everyone happy on every single topic. Yep. And so there is this market need for people to cover niche topics, right? And journalists, especially who go deep on those, have utmost respect for, who create like their own niche, their own publications, their own newsletters. Love it. Love to see more of it. Think it's super important. Yeah. It's that one step beyond that makes me really nervous. And there's a great quote in this article. While many online news creators are, and then it gives like an example of a trained journalist who has gone deep to report on news that's relevant to the Muslim community, our trained journalists 
Others are aggregators and partisan commentators, sometimes masquerading as journalists, right? Yeah. Aggregators and partisan commentators. The aggregators don't bother me as much just because as someone who went to J school, I have friends who are still working in newsrooms and they, their roles are to aggregate news, but I guess they of course have the added benefit of having a large media company that has tons of resources so they can fact check and verify Mm -hmm, Exactly. add on. So the partisan commentators though, that's a word because that is so true. So, so true. There's an academic overtone to how Mm -hmm. people present themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like, where it sounds really official. It sounds really smart. Sounds like you know what you're talking about. But I think that's the masquerading part that bothers me the most is it can sound like the truth. Mm -hmm. And I am generally, maybe this is part of my kind of training and background, but I am generally skeptical about what is true, even when I'm reading a journalistic standard, even when I'm reading the Times. Like you don't, You are always reading shades of the truth and nothing is ever capital T truth. And that is definitely true when you're reading traditional journalism. And it's much more true mm-hmm. when you're when you don't know who someone is, where they're getting their information. Yeah. But they sound really smart. They make it sound great and believable. And even how people deliver content at this point, it, it affects how we perceive them. Right now, there's this whole trend, I use trend with air quotes, of being your authentic self, right? People are now, I feel like they're turning it into like therapy speak where it's being misused and abused. Yes. But this the sense of authenticity and be you and you're more relatable. You're reporting to me live from your car while you're stuck in traffic and you're another human. So you must yeah. know what you're talking about. Yeah. The authenticity yeah. and relatability almost ends up getting weaponized to spread disinformation. And yeah. I don't think it's intentional. It's not intentional or malicious for the most part. I think it's tied to the social media platforms because they've trained us that we need to be first and we need to have all these followers and likes. And And they've trained us that the best way to grow an audience is to be against something, right? You've got to incite some feeling, evoke emotion. To incite some outrage, the the content travels so that you get more views, you get more followers. Anyway, it's the Jay Rosen, an associate professor of journalism in this article is, is quoted as saying it is chaotic and contradictory adding that it has never been easier to be both informed and misinformed about Mm. world events. So what do we do about this? We mostly speak to business leaders on this podcast, (laughs) but I do think that a disinformation-rife environment where traditional media is not as trusted is related to how we do business. So what do you do if you're, let's just start from there. If you're a business leader, how do you operate in this environment? And let's, then let's say if you are a normal news reader who just wants to be informed about the world, how do you operate in this environment? My previous solution would have been, let's just go back to legacy media and have them inform us. But now, as you just recap, that trust has been broken for a lot of people. And so how do you know? How do you know that someone, if you decide to go the other route of looking at influencers or ind- independent journalists or whoever they are, how do I verify? Do I go on their LinkedIn and look at their resume and see if they have a PhD or... At least one level of who is this person and what is their bio is probably helpful, right? Yeah. (laughs) How few of us actually even click through to see who this person is that shared this content that got our... You know what I mean? Yeah. I've many times looked at someone who shared something in the stories and then been like, oh man, that really hit me. And then I'll click through to their account. 
and their bio, I'll be like, what is this even saying? I have no idea who this person is. Could There's be a no bot. context. There's no. And so stopping and creating some friction around just do I know who this is that is sharing this? And do I understand who they are and what their credibility is in this area? Yeah, that's a start. If I'm sharing, I don't know, some news updates on what's currently happening in the Middle East, and I post it as a 30 to 60 second short on YouTube, and it gets millions of views, unlikely that those millions of people that like this actually looked at my profile or verified the information, which I probably just right. pulled from an AI tool. You are right that that points back to the responsibility of the platforms themselves to try mm-hmm. to verify reliable information and downplay or remove information that is not reliable. Right. Which, again, we've seen them downplaying that responsibility. And mm-hmm. even when they weren't, they weren't doing a great job. So yeah. <laughs> not that thrilled about that. I do want to call out it, this to me. It says that your like PR and comms strategy should include influencers and should include non-traditional media sources, right? Like mm. almost any topic that you are trying to make an impact and a dent on in the public sphere has people who are in their niches covering that topic beyond just the kind of traditional journalists. So if you want to really be a part of a p- important public conversation now, to me, it has to look, you have to look beyond just the people with the traditional credentials. Right, right. I agree. I certainly agree. I think traditional credentials just don't hold nearly as much weight as they used to. And so there has to be more. For better, for worse. For better, for worse. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Now that we've solved that. Yes. God, I'm the, that, that whole story just makes me so depressed. <laughs> Tell us about how we can be more inclusive and ethical sources of talent. Yes, how to be more inclusive and ethical. There's so many things to, to really highlight here. I'll try to streamline it as much as possible because this is one of those topics that I can be quite long-winded on. Um, and I want to also make sure that I touch on the comment or question that you made earlier about how we might approach inclusive hiring and or recruiting and hiring depending on the size of the organization as well. So again, when we're thinking about sourcing and hiring, I think a lot of people tend to default to job postings and inclusive language in my job description. And did we include our DEI statement or mission here? And it has to be more than that, right? I think depending on who you are and what your role is, especially for those of you that are actively involved in the hiring process, I'm not just talking about leaders who are like, yeah, just go add some headcount. I'm talking about people that are actively part of the process and the outcomes. First and foremost, and I feel like people get so tired of hearing this, you actually do need to check your biases. You need to reflect on who you are and how you perceive other people because it is going to seep into not only how you are sourcing, recruiting, and hiring, but it actually will seep into the processes themselves, which is a much bigger issue. And what I mean by that is, for instance, if you're in an organization, I, this is a common one where a lot of people are alums of a university and there's just like this common theme of, well, we have all these great people from the school. We should probably, you know, let's go just tap into that. Give the next generation a leg up. Exactly. And you are constantly hiring people from that. That is just going to be passed down and it's going to become a part of the process where there's this expectation that people that come in for interviews are likely going to be a new grad or an alum of that school. So there are various versions of that type of bias, but it does end up creeping into your process. 
Another thing that is really important is also recognizing that it is helpful to have an actual process. I keep saying process. That doesn't mean we're just going to arbitrarily be like, oh, look at these resumes. And I think I'll call this person. And Leah, you can interview with Caleb and this person. And then the next candidate, you're like, oh, I think you're good. You don't need to interview with those people. No, you need an actual process, an equitable process where you are actually giving people a similar you know, order of steps, if you will. So maybe your first step is they apply or they submit their application. The second step is a resume review. The third step is then in a phone call. And the fourth step is a formal interview with two to three people, right? But it is an equitable process and it's fair. And of course you have to recognize if people need accommodations, right? There's neurodiversity that exists. So if you are like, oh, I have to have a phone call as the first step, but that doesn't work for someone, maybe there's a different approach that you consider. So keeping in mind individual needs, but also the fairness overall to ensure that there's no sort of favoritism or bias that's creeping into the process. And then there's there are various things that you can do within the interview process. Some people like to use rubrics. You know, if you're doing if you're hiring for a technical role, maybe you have people do some sort of coding exercise. Right. If yeah. you're hiring for an admin role, maybe you give them a calendaring exercise. Your executive leader needs to be in two places at once. How are you going to modify their calendar? And you give them 20 minutes to solve for this issue, right? So very practical ways to gauge the skills that are necessary for the role. And that helps you be more objective. So you're not just, oh, I kind of like this person. I don't like this person. I I can't tell you how many recruiters just, I think it was a month and a half ago, I did a a workshop with some of my favorite recruiters, by the way. If you're listening, you are my favorites. And I love them because (laughs) they're always like so receptive to feedback and open to trying new things. They're at a niche recruiting agency. But we did this this exercise through Slido, which if you're not familiar, is a way that you can do anonymous polling. And I was just curious. I was like, what are some things that stop you from moving forward with a candidate? Some people were saying things like location, if there are gaps in their resume, if there are spelling or grammatical errors, if I don't like how the resume is designed. I was like, hold on, (laughs) the design, the text, like these are things that, yes, are your personal biases. And so you have to check. Is that creeping into my decisions overall? Is this a one time thing? And so just making sure that you're aware of that. And again, having these more formal processes is going to help you avoid some of that biasing and stereotyping that may come in. I got to empathize with them in terms of this amount of resumes they go through. Oh, yeah. And as someone who's, who's hired people before, you are looking for any reason to move mm-hmm. on to the next person. You know what I mean? Like you're yeah. looking for literally any reason to make that stack shorter oh, than yeah. it has to be. And that includes referrals from alumni or other Mm -hmm. employees. And it includes design or typos or, I mean, I'm at the point where I always say cover letters. Like we don't really care that much about cover letters. I think they're stupid, but they're more likely to disqualify you than qualify you in Mm -hmm. my mind, because of if you are a bad writer or if you don't know what you're saying in the cover letter, I'm like, nope, move on to the next person. And again, you are telling me that isn't good. I hear that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think that you're probably right, but I want to yeah. empathize with those recruiters who are just like, oh shit, it is hard to do my job. I got to figure out a way to whittle down this pool. But guess what? Why can't we reinvent the wheel? It, it's time. We've been doing this right. like very like 
antiquated process of looking at resume, looking at two pieces of paper, a resume and a cover letter to determine if someone is is the person that I should hire. Like in this world where we have all of these resources and tools, you can now create videos of yourself. You can have phone calls. You can test people to do different things. Why are we relying on the same things over and over? It doesn't make any sense. It's the worst. It really is. Can I ask you a question about the technical aspect? Because I do agree with you that it is good to see if someone can do the job. And I mean, that doesn't always apply to every job you're hiring for. It gets a little bit harder. But I've also seen that as people move up in seniority, Mm -hmm. there seems to be more reluctance to do that kind of thing. What do you think about that? If you're trying to get, let's say, a CTO, sure, you're not going to make the CTO code for you, right? Are you or should we? I don't know. That's what I'm that's what I'm asking you. I think it depends on the role, right? So if you're in a smaller organization, from what I've seen, CTOs are still doing some actual, a good chunk of actual coding work. Yeah. So if that is depending on the size of the org. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm talking very like 50 and under, I've seen that be the case. But then once you start getting into the hundreds, I see that CTOs are usually doing more managing and helping with right. decision making and less of the, I'm going to sit here and code this thing, right? In which case, I would then want to be testing them on their managerial skills. What are your interpersonal skills like? How do you do with managing a distributed team? What does that look like for you? How have you helped team members mitigate conflict? How do you make difficult decisions? Those are the things that really matter and assuring that they are going to be able to come into your organization, given how it is in this moment, and actually work with the people there. Yeah. Or transform it if that's the case. If it's you know it's in a state that needs some sort of transformation, is it the person that can do that? Um, so that's my take on that. I don't think there, you know it's it depends on again what are the qualifications, what are sure. the skills, what do I actually want you to come do? I think a lot of times as we go through the hiring process, we almost lose sight of what the actual job is because we're so focused on the person and oh, is this person going to be a good true. fit here? Can I hang out with them? Who gives a shit if you can hang out with them? Because they may not want to hang out with you. I I keep coming back to this whole like belonging idea. Not everyone wants to belong in their workplace. Not everyone wants to be friends with the people they work with. Some of us do. At the very least, belonging is on a spectrum, right? It is on a spectrum. That is an excellent way to put it. So some people, they go to work and they're like, oh my God, I love it here. This is where I make a lot of connections. And there's nothing wrong with that. But on the other end of the spectrum and all the steps in between, it's also okay to be like, I go to work, I do my job. I don't want to tell you about my weekend. That doesn't mean I'm any less capable or, or, or that I'm disposable in any way, but that's just who I am. And so I think that is something that I try to remind people of as well, especially for people that belong to less represented identities yeah. within a workplace, because it's like, it's draining. It's really draining to have to put on all the time. There's one other thing that I really want to touch on that has been a topic of discussion lately, and I don't know why it's so popular now, but expanding your network. This is not a new concept. I think we keep going back to old episodes, but episodes ago, I talked about the lack of (laughs) diversity amongst friends groups, right, amongst adults in the United States. And that really does translate into how you navigate within your workspace as well. But historically, less represented folks have not had really extensive networks. And we know, even though I'm talking to you about resumes and cover letters and making sure you have process steps, most people are getting hired through referrals still at the end of the day, right? Or based on who they know, based on a network. So if you as a leader, as a hiring manager, as a sourcer or recruiter, especially sourcers and recruiters who 
seem to think that LinkedIn is the only source that you can use when it is in fact not. If your network lacks diversity, then you best believe when you go to source and you look for talent, you're probably going to keep seeing the same people over and Mm -hmm. over. And you're going to be like, oh, well, I can't find anyone. I guess not. You're relying on one source, one limited source. So you have to both expand your own personal network, but you also need to venture out to different sources. Get creative. We have TikTok. We have Twitter. We have (laughs) <laughs> Facebook. I, and I know that sounds bizarre, but Facebook is a, actually a great resource for finding talent because people yeah. still use it, especially in the middle parts of the US. I love the idea of like intentionally networking online to diversify your candidate pool or like to each your point, your friend group. Um, I think that's super smart. Just to make it explicit for our users, where do you fall on the we need a certain amount of people of color in our candidate pool before we even close down our job or like pick a candidate. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Where do you fall on that? I have mixed feelings about that. I think that depending on the role, it can make sense, but there are so many factors. So sometimes I'm like, okay, if you have the time to do that, that's great. But then on one hand, it's like, why do you have to have X number of black and brown people did you think about gender diversity? Did you think about neurodiversity, disability? Right. It's hard to check all the boxes. Yeah. Right, right. Can't have a quota for every single marginalized group. It's impossible, but I think there is opportunity to try to have as diverse a pool as possible. I- I'm not really a fan of the whole check the box. We have to have a specific number. I mean, it's also illegal to have quotas, by the way. So I was going to say, let's set aside the like goals. very direct pushback we're having on affirmative action right Everyone now. Everyone loves goals. <laughs> what are our hiring goals, right? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I'm still, I'm torn on that one. On one hand, it's yes, you're going to inevitably increase your pipeline and have a diverse selection to hopefully hire someone from. On the other hand, you might not. And I'm, I, I have a lot of questions around that because it's then okay, what does your current workforce look like? Are you trying to hire all these folks in and then they get there and you've actually not considered what the workplace looks like for them? Because then we're dealing with attrition. That's a really good point. So I think before you do that, focus on other things. So you're saying diversify your candidate pool before you need them. Basically, don't put out a job rack and then go try to find your diverse folks. (laughs) Like actually do the work to find people both personally to kind of network with, but also as a company to have in your talent pool before you put the job rec out there and then worry less about trying to meet some specific number with that job. Almost, yes. So my my general approach is what's going on internally? How are your systems and processes set up for your people when we're thinking about accessibility, when we're thinking about benefits, when we're thinking about how people communicate in the workplace, is it designed for a diverse mix of people to come in? If not, Mm -hmm. we probably need to adjust some things because we can go spend all this time and money hiring people and then they come in and they're like, what is this? I don't like this place. It's not for me. No one's thought about inclusivity or equity at all, right? So, and you can do these things at the same time, right? I can start cleaning up house and then I can start looking for a new furnishing <laughs> at the same time. And so, yes, it, the my, my general approach is less of, I generally don't like setting quotas around demographics because I just don't, again, you can't tick a box for every single piece of identity, right? Right. But I do think it's important for leaders and those hiring to, yes, 
diversify the sources, use inclusive language in your job descriptions, make it clear who you are and that you're inviting people in, whether that's on your website, through your social media platforms, whatever other public outlets exist. And then people are going to come to you because they're going to be like, oh, they actually put in some work and considered what this might look like. And I'm not talking about putting stock images of fake employees on your website because we know, <laughs> we know when it's going fake. back to AI, going to so go get better. my diverse workforce through my AI. Generative. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had focus groups and I've asked people what attracts them to less represented people, what attracts them to an organization. And it always comes back to just being honest. So if you don't have, if you lack diversity within your workforce, don't try to sell me a dream. Just be real. If I go to an interview and I'm like, hey, what's the diversity like? And you're like, oh, well, we have. No, you don't have anyone that looks like me. That's fine. But be real. So I know what I'm getting mm, myself into. That's so, really good. Yeah. And I love the love what you're talking about focusing on like making sure once they get there, it's an authentic, like they feel included, even if they yeah. are the first kind of person of color or the first underrepresented person. Exactly. Onboarding, yeah. friends, is part of the hiring process. I always have to remind people that 100%. is the first step to actually retaining people. So if you hire someone, don't just be like, oh, you got it. Good luck. <laughs> like, Give them some guidance as they yep. onboard and they ease into the space. Been on both ends of that spectrum. <laughs> it <laughs> yes. makes a huge difference. Yes, definitely. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Some good concrete advice to follow my media shitstorm. I love it. <laughs> yes, yes. And if you want more, I have a DEI course that you can check out. So, yeah, where can people find that? It's adrielparker.com slash courses, and you will see DEI hiring, sourcing, recruiting right there. It's a Udemy course, so it's easy. Do yourselves a favor. Yeah. Go find that. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. All right, let's switch into talking about our one good things for the week. Yes, let's do it. What do you got for our one good thing for the week, Adriel? So for the first time this century, apparently, unions are winning in the U.S. So that's pretty exciting news. We are hitting some record-breaking wage hikes. The United Auto Workers just reached a historic contract deal, which is really exciting. And so really good. Yeah, really good deal. We're talking 6.6% raises on average, which is exciting stuff. So I know that. Hollywood is still unfortunately striking, yeah. but hopefully very different industries, be, right? Very like, different industries, but I think different. the union theme, right? And seeing that the union can actually benefit employees is major. Yeah. And also just seeing this sort of shift in power. I feel like employees are taking yeah. back that ownership or maybe just taking it on for the first time. I don't know. if, Yeah. Yeah, I think what's true about since the pandemic is we've had a major shift in worker empowerment. And it mm -hmm. doesn't it's not consistent across industries. It's not necessarily always within unions, although unions yeah. are driving a lot of it. But I think that it just it definitely just shook up our expectations about what we should expect from our employers, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's been a huge boon to unionization in general. And mm -hmm. now we are seeing some fruits of that. Absolutely. Toyota in particular, they increased their factory workers pay by 9% after the UAW gains. So yeah. Yeah. It, it was a lot of, it was a pretty good deal. And I expected them to be able to get a pretty good deal because of the direction and how much the auto industry has bounced back. 
definitely hollywood different story and i know that i know that people celebrated the writer strike ending and the deal they got but that deal was not as good as what uaw was able to negotiate for many reasons but overall i'm definitely excited about the worker empowerment trend and there was a lot of um skepticism about whether unions could hack it like whether they Mm -hmm. were still a an effective instrument of worker empowerment and i think Mm -hmm. they're proving that they still have things to say right? Still have the ability to make a big difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've also been following, just been passing the pharmacy or pharmacist strikes. Yeah. They were supposed to. Walgreens, right? Yeah. And CVS. I think they were staging a three-day walkout, which I believe started today. So these are protests by non-union workers. So I'm curious to see how that plays out as well. And if this movement with these unions in the auto industry actually have some impact on their industry as well. Nice. I want to talk about a reform movement within Discord to actually bring trolls back to the platform instead of banning them completely. Have you read about this? (laughs) No. (laughs) So the reason this is good news, usually bringing trolls back, I wouldn't call it good news. Yeah. (laughs) But it is not just bringing them back. They are trying to rehabilitate them. So traditionally, the way that you go about getting rid of trolls is banning them. Right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a strike system with a lot of p- platforms. It varies, obviously, different moderation policies in different communities. It varies. Sure. But Discord basically said their three strikes policy levied the same penalty for both minor infractions and major violations. Mm-hmm. So it was basically like you got a strike for something small and then you got a strike for something big. You basically got the same penalty, which is being banned. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't give the people the chance to rehabilitate or change their behavior. So they came up with this idea that said, if you want to invite them to stay and basically behave better, you have to figure out how to educate them. And they tried to, they're basically trying to create a little bit of nuance with their disciplinary system. Okay. So this is fascinating. Very. So the company explained these changes in a blog post. Users who break rules will receive an in-app message directly from Discord, letting them know that they received either a warning or a violation. And then details are one click away where they can actually learn about that. So all the info about the violation and why it was violating content, what it violated, all of that, are basically within the user experience of how you would interact with Discord anyway. Mm -hmm. And then some things they will have zero tolerance policy toward like violent extremism and content that sexualizes children obviously that's not going to be a thing where they try to attempt to rehabilitate someone but the yeah. stuff that is smaller in violation or you know like someone might not actually realize why something was against policy mm-hmm. they are trying to figure out ways not to ban them forever instead if they have to ban them they're going to ban them for one year and then try to, again, rehabilitate them and bring them back. Okay. Isn't that fascinating? It is. And I'm just, I guess, a little shocked that they're investing in this. But that's maybe they're trying to set the tone for what the future might look like. I mean, there are a lot of trolls out there that need a little help. So The reason why I found this story encouraging was because of all we were just saying about One, how much individual content creators are becoming important in our media ecosystem, Mm -hmm. how little media literacy we actually have to be able to share and reshare. And I do feel like we need more, not just macro approaches to digital media literacy, but the kind of micro approaches 
especially for young people. I'm thinking of my son here who actually uses Discord. Sure. To understand what the platform guidelines are, why something might have been in violation, how to be better, like how yeah. to be a more productive member of the community. Yeah. I would just, I would love to see Twitter slash X meta like to take some of these approaches, not necessarily because I think that all trolls are able to be rehabilitated or everyone deserves a second chance or any mm -hmm. of that. But I do think that this is more, m most people, let's say 80% of the time, I think people end up getting these kind of violations just because we don't teach this kind of media literacy shit. And so I'm all yeah. about just trying to help people be better online. We need creative solutions to that. Definitely. I mean, knowing that half of Discord users are in their teens to young adults age range, I, it makes so much sense. And I haven't heard of any schools teaching this. So I think it's pretty cool that Discord is taking this on. And I'm curious to see what it looks like moving forward. Exciting yeah. stuff. And I should say this comes up along the heels of other things that Discord is doing called mm -hmm. introducing a feature called Teen Safety Assist, which is enabled by default for younger users. They also have rolled out new parental tracking on Discord. So they're okay. doing some really smart things yeah. in the trust and safety realm. And they must be driving Mr. Andreessen crazy. I can only imagine. <laughs> For sure. It's also just like a nice break from cancel culture. Like it's nice to see a platform be saying. like, you know, we're not just going to throw you to the wolves and forget about you. But we actually yeah. want to educate you and, and create a safer environment and community for our users. So a hundred percent. Good note to end on. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. Hopefully you learned something because I know I did. Every time I listen to Adriel, I learn a little bit more, get a little bit smarter. Likewise, likewise. <laughs> we'll be back next week. In the meantime, go check us out on Instagram at leadership. That's leader, S-H underscore T for some content and questions for the next week's news and check out uh, the episode notes here at leadership.show. And we will talk to you next week. Adriel, so always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. See you soon. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Thinking about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more information about Caleb and his work and even hire him to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com and find his book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected, Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold. You can find more about me, Adrielle, and my diversity, equity, and inclusion work at adrielleparker.com. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash adrielleparker for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership. Mm -hmm.